You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. May 4, uh, 14th, 1804, Meriwether Lewis, along with William Clark and a select group of volunteers known as the Corps of Discovery, uh, were sent out by Thomas Jefferson, then President Thomas Jefferson, to find a waterway that would connect our country to the Pacific Ocean. And if you know your American history, you know that this was anything but an easy task. Um, they would experience long, boring stretches where it seemed like nothing was happening. They would experience disease, loss, conflict, death. They were attacked at times uh, by Native Americans. They were attacked by wild animals. I mean, it was just a very difficult journey. And to make matters worse, eventually they came to the end of their map. And when they came to the end of this map, they thought that they were going to run into the Pacific Ocean. But instead of finding the ocean, they found the Rocky Mountains. Now, keep in mind, these are people who had never seen mountains in their life. And so here they are now as, as, as a team that only knew how to journey with a boat, and they're forced with this question. Are we now going to turn back and go to where it was comfortable and safe and familiar, or are we going to ditch the boat, and are we going to learn how to navigate these mountains? Are we going to press forward in the mission that we were given despite the risk and the dangers and the uncertainty that awaits us? And if you know your history, you know they chose a ladder. They actually decided to press forward in the mission. They go through the Rocky Mountains. Eventually, they find the Pacific Ocean. Two years later, they go back, and they fulfill the mission and really change the course of human history. And the whole reason I share that is because if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know that the Christian journey can at times feel like an expedition. There are times where we can go through ourselves long and boring stretches where we wonder, what is the point of all this again? Like, why am I showing up each Sunday to sing songs and listen to preaching? Why do I continue to read the Bible? Why do I continue to pray? Why do I continue to take communion? Why am I doing this? Like, it seems like nothing is really happening. There are also times in the Christian life where we experience loss and we experience hardship. There are moments where we find ourselves navigating a situation that feels totally unique. Times where, where we think we should be at the beach, but instead we find ourselves trying to climb this intimidating mountain that honestly seems way too big for us to summit. And therefore, because this is true, there are times where the mission we have been given, because it seems harder than we ever imagined, we are all tempted to turn back. We are all tempted to do things the way we were doing it before we ever met Jesus, to basically live like the rest of the world and hope that we died in old age in our sleep and go to heaven. And because the preacher in Hebrews knows this is true, he looks at this church in the very first century, a church that is under extreme pressure to conform to the world, a church that is experiencing a heavy amount of persecution and suffering, and over and over and over, this is his message. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't fall away. Don't drift off course. Keep pressing forward. Keep pursuing Jesus and this mission so that in the end, you can receive truly in Christ this abundant life that you are longing for. This is what the preacher is after. And the question that I want to try to answer this morning is, how do we do this? Like, like really, how does this go from being just like a pep talk on a Sunday morning to to really meaning something in our lives. Like, how do we, as a people, avoid mission drift? 
How do we, as a church, continue to pursue Jesus? How do we stay on course in the midst of hardship and loss and death and this ever-nagging temptation that every human has to avoid pain at all costs? I've been reading a book called Tools by a psychologist named Phil Stutz. There was a Netflix special that Jonah Hill uh, put together and produced with him. It's actually Jonah Hill's and a lot of celebrities. Uh, they looked at this guy as kind of their therapist, and he wrote a book. He's not a Christian as far as I know, but in his book, he's got a lot of great truths in there. And in chapter one, he talks about this desire that every human has to avoid pain at all costs. And I think I have a, a drawing that he put together. If not, uh, that's okay. But uh, he basically talks about how every single human wants to live in their own comfort zone. He talks about how we want to stay in this place where it is familiar and it is safe and it is easy. And we don't want to leave that out of fear that if we leave this, we're going to hit pain. We're going to come up against conflict and hardship. And he says, you know, that sounds like a good way to live, to avoid pain at all costs. But he says, when you do this, you actually pay a huge price. Because as Stutz points out in his book, if you cannot tolerate pain, you will never be fully alive. He says in his book that your comfort zone is supposed to keep you safe, but what it actually does is keep you small. It keeps you from experiencing the life you long to live, or as Jesus refers to as the abundant life. Remember, Jesus himself said, if you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross and follow me. If you love your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. And you see, the goal of the preacher is to say, man, stay on this course. Get out of your comfort zone. Take the risk. Keep on pressing forward lest you drift away into apathy and ultimately into destruction. And again, the question is, how do we do this? Well, with that question in mind, look with me back at our passage. And, and just to set the context for you, remember, the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. And so this is not, you know, we're breaking it up into chapters and verses, but the, the, the entire book, imagine it as someone standing before you and preaching this whole thing in about 35 minutes. That's what's happening here. And, and what the preacher just finished saying to his church is really one of the hardest sayings in all of the New Testament. You remember from the week before Easter, we talked about this, where he looked and he said, um, don't get comfortable, don't get apathetic. There are people who have prayed this prayer and asked Jesus into their heart who have drifted into destruction. Basically what he is saying in, in, in the section that he just left is it is very possible for you not to lose your salvation, but it is possible for you to think you're saved when in fact that you are not. It is possible for you to drift away from this Jesus, not because you had salvation and lost it, but you never truly received the Spirit of God. It's a very hard teaching. You can go back, you can listen to it. But then after saying this very hard thing, he looks at them in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. He says, but to you, I'm convinced of better things. He says, I'm convinced of better things, things concerning salvation. He says, when I look at your life, I am seeing fruit that tells me you are truly a child of God. And you can read this on your own in verse 10. What is the fruit that he sees in their life that convinces him that these are true Christians? Well, it's love. It's a love of God. And how does he know they love God? Well, he says, by how they love one another. Guys, it is so important that you hear this. What is the number one way you can tell if someone truly is a child of God? It is not their Bible knowledge. It is not their Sunday attendance. It is not how they vote. It is not the fact that they don't say cuss words or don't drink beer or whatever else it may be. The number one way that you can know if someone truly is a child of God is by how they love one another. The Bible is clear. We like to think of our relationship with God as, as really like my relationship. It's just about me and God, nobody else. That is an American idea. 
The Bible is 100% clear. Go and read 1 John 4 on your own this week. Go and read Matthew 25, Jesus' words, where he literally says, how do you know the difference between someone who looks like they're saved but aren't and someone that's truly saved? He says, well, look at how they treat their brothers and sisters. Specifically, look at how they treat the least of their brothers and sisters. The church members who, who seem to be on the outcast, like the outside, like how we treat them is ultimately how we treat God. And so he says, I'm convinced when I look at you, and he talks about this later, like how they've endured, how they visited one another in prison, how they were generous and helped bear one another's burdens and pay bills and all that. He talks about that later, and he says, because of this fruit I see in your life, I am convinced you truly are saved. I am convinced that you will persevere to the end, that you will not drift away. But then notice, because there is no neutral in the Christian life, because there is no time, guys, listen, where we should ever say, well, because of these great things I did 10 years ago, I can just hit the cruise button now. Because there's never a time where we can say, you know what, I'm going to take a season just to do what I want to do. I'm just going to kind of pull back, and I'm going to pick and choose the parts of the Bible I want to follow, and I'm not going to worry about community, and I'm just going to kind of you know, focus on me and my own little personal relationship with Jesus. Because that is never an option in the Christian life. Despite this great stuff he sees them doing, in verse 11, if you look with me, chapter 6, 11, he says, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. So don't give up. Don't be like, I've done my time in the church. I served like crazy. Like, like I did all the good stuff, and now I'm going to go sit on the sidelines. He says, don't do that. Show the same diligence to the very end so what you hope for may be fully realized. And look at verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy. Don't become apathetic. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The preacher says, look, hey, you want to persevere? You want to stand the test of time? Like, you want to know, like, am I, am I going to make it till the very end? Am I going to continue to follow Jesus, or am I going to drift away into destruction? Like, am I going to be one of these people who inherit the promises? Am I going to experience this unshakable joy? Am I one day going to experience a life of perfect peace and pleasure and, and life as it was intended to be? Well, the preacher says, if you want to get there, there are two things that you're going to need today. Two things and only two things. There are two components of the Christian life that he says in here in verse 12 that are absolutely essential in order for you to stand the test of time. And what are those two things that every Christian has to have? He says it right here, verse 12. It's faith and it's patience. If you are going to stand the test of time, if you are going to keep from drifting away from Jesus, away from life, you're going to need faith and you're going to need patience. I was listening to Adrian Rogers preach this past week. My dad used to listen to Adrian Rogers all the time. I don't know if I'd ever heard a full sermon from Adrian Rogers my whole life since I was a kid until this last week. There's a sermon he was preaching called Failure is Not Final. I just somehow stumbled across it, thought it was great. But in this sermon, he had this quote that has stuck with me. I think I can put it on the screen for you. But Adrian Rogers says this, Faith is believing God in spite of appearances and obeying God in spite of consequences. Faith is believing God in spite of appearances and obeying God in spite of consequences. The preacher says, if you're going to stand the test of time, you're going to need that kind of faith. You're going to need to trust God in spite of appearances. Why? Because sometimes it won't even look like God's doing anything in your life. Sometimes like, it's going to seem like he's completely absent. 
Like he's not at work at all. So you're going to need to be able to trust God in spite of appearances, and you're also going to need to obey God in spite of consequences. Sometimes when you choose to follow Jesus, he will make your life better. Other times you'll choose to follow Jesus, and he'll make your life a lot harder. If I can just have real talk with you for a moment, there's a lot of times in my life where Jesus has made my life harder. A lot of times. I have lost because I follow Jesus. I've experienced hardship because I follow Jesus. And Jesus says the same will be true for you in this life. He says you will have many troubles. Paul says all who desire to live a godly life, they will suffer persecution. So if you're going to stand the test of time, you need this kind of faith. A faith that says I'm going to believe God in spite of appearances and obey God in spite of consequences. But not only are you going to need faith, you're going to need patience. And why in the world would you ever need patience if you're going to stand the test of time? Here's why. Because God rarely, if ever, seems to be in a hurry. God has all eternity. He sees the whole picture. He sees how this thing is going to end. And so guess what? Most of the time when you're freaking out, God's not freaking out. Like God, yes, like he's emotional, he gets sad, he gets angry, he feels your pain, but he sees the whole picture. And because he's not just in time, but outside of time, he is not on the same timetable that you were on. And therefore, rarely will he do what you want whenever you want. I remember in 2008, I was convinced, I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, sitting in my dorm, and I wrote it in my journal, God is calling me to plant a church in Paragold, Arkansas. I knew that I knew that I knew God was calling me to do that. Came back in 2008, began to ask people, who wants to join me? Nobody. It's like, well, God called me to do this, but it wasn't the time. He told me in 2008, we didn't plant until 2012. Four years after a promise that he had given me was it then fulfilled. See, if we're going to persevere, if we're going to stand the test of time, if we're going to finish the race God has given us, if we're going to push through the pain and uncertainty, if we're going to leave our comfort zone and take risk in order to fulfill the mission that Jesus himself has given us, we need faith and we need patience. Most of you know I hate flying on planes. Hate it. Um, it's something that, that I've been scared of since I was a kid, but sometimes I have to do it because of my job. And, you know, by the way, it's like, if you're like, why do you hate planes? I always want to be like, why do you not hate planes? Because think about it. You are being trapped in a metal tube with a bunch of coughing and hacking people at 40,000 feet in the air going at like 600 miles per hour. Like, what's not to hate about that? Like, what's to enjoy about that? But here's the thing. Though I don't like being on a plane, in order for me to get to where I need to go, I've got to get on a plane. And for me to get on a plane, I need faith and I need patience. I need faith. It's going to be okay. I'm going to make it. And I need patience because it's not going to happen within just a second or two. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. If you're ever going to get where Jesus is calling you, if you're ever going to arrive at this desired destination, you have to live a life of faith and patience. Now, here's the thing. Because a preacher knows this is way easier said than done. He says, let me show you an example of what this looks like. Remember in verse 12, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited what has been promised. And he says, now let me show you an example of this. And this is where we come to our text. Hebrews 13, he says this. When God made his promise to Abraham, since, he was, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, if you look at the end of verse 14, there is a footnote. And if you follow that footnote down to the bottom of your Bible, it'll say that what the preacher is doing is he is quoting 
Genesis twenty two seventeen. Now, remember, the preacher in Hebrews is preaching to a church that knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands. We as a church do not know the Old Testament like the back of our hands. And therefore, we need to, if we're going to go forward, go back to understand what is actually happening in Genesis 22. Because whenever he quotes Genesis 22:17, he doesn't have to stop and tell them anything else that's going on. They immediately know, oh, this is the story, this is the context, this verse finds itself in. So hold your spot in Hebrews 6. Turn with me quickly to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22, and while you're turning there, just to set the context for you, in Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them in this paradise state where they have this perfect relationship with one another and with God. Everything's beautiful and rhythmic and as it should be. But Adam and Eve, they were deceived by the serpent. The serpent convinced them that they know better how to rule than God does. And so they decide to eat of the fruit God tells them not to eat from. Immediately they fall. Sin enters the picture along with death and destruction along with shame and guilt and fear. And what's incredible is that God, despite the fact that Adam and Eve screwed up this creation, despite the fact that humanity rebelled against them, God in Genesis 3 comes to Adam and Eve and he makes a promise. And he says, you screwed this up, but I'm going to fix it. I'm going to send one who will be born of a woman who one day is going to have his heel bruised by the serpent, but he is going to crush the head of the serpent, and he is going to free you up to once again experience life with me as you intended to experience it. And by the way, guys, that's what the Bible calls grace. God did not have to do that. He owed us nothing. We did nothing to earn or deserve him to step into humanity and fix our mess. But that's the promise he makes in Genesis 3. And if you keep reading through Genesis, you see that humans just fail over and over and over and over. They, they struggle to be obedient to God. They continue to disobey God. And eventually in Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram, who would later have his name changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And here's the promise. God comes to Abram and he says to him, look, I am going to Abram through you create a nation and I'm going to bless this nation so that they will be a blessing to the nations. It's important, by the way, side note, anytime God blesses somebody, he always does it so they can be a blessing to others. God never gives you money or resources or whatever it is just so you can sit on it for your own good will. He blesses people to be a blessing to others. That's what we see with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you with a nation so that you can bless the nations, which sounds great, but here's the problem. When God comes and makes that promise to Abraham and Sarah, they are really old. They are in their 70s, and they've never had children. They weren't able to have children when they were young. Now that things don't quite work the way they should work, they shouldn't be able to have children whenever they are old. It's a laughable promise. That's why when Abraham told Sarah, she actually laughed. But if you read the rest of the story, what happens? Well, in Genesis 21 which for you math majors in here comes right before chapter what? 22, which is what the preacher in Hebrews is quoting in Genesis 6. But in Genesis 21, think about this, 25 years later. We read the Bible and we go from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. We think it's like a couple days wait. 25 years after the initial promise, Sarah finally gives birth to this first promised son that this great nation would come through. And I don't want you to rush past that. 25 years. 25 years is a long time. 25 years ago, I was 15 years old. 
And I spent my days like playing street hockey, listening to Oasis, trying to get the attention of girls unsuccessfully. And basically I had a diet that only consisted of, I think, like Pop-Tarts, pizza rolls, and Yoo-Hoo's. That's pretty much it. 25 years is a long time. A lot has changed in 25 years. That is a very long time to wait. And yet this is how long Abraham and Sarah had to wait for this promise that God had made them, the birth of their first son. And for the record, their waiting was anything but smooth. There's a point where Abraham got tired of waiting. He wasn't perfect in this. And he comes to Sarah, and they both agree. Hey, like Sarah's like, hey, something ain't working here, so why don't you just take Hagar, sleep with her, and maybe she'll give you a kid. Then that nation will come forward. And so he goes, and he sleeps with his female servant, Hagar. Ishmael's burn, or born, and, and, and all sorts of just stuff breaks loose. I mean, through the, nation of, uh, through, the, through the birth of Ishmael, this new nation was born. This Arab nation was constantly in conflict and war. I mean, it just, they, I mean Adam, Abraham and Sarah, they didn't wait patiently. They didn't wait perfectly. They took matters into their own hands at times, and as a result, it jacked up their marriage, it jacked up their family. There was a lot of consequences that were completely irreversible, but here's the thing. you got to hear this. So Abraham was not perfect. Though he struggled with lying and deceit and manipulation, though he made his fair share of mistakes, though he was not perfect, he continued to persevere. He continued to trust God, and as a result, as God often does, where there is no way, he makes a way. Out of nothing, he creates something. He finally gives Abraham and Sarah the first son of the promise. But then look at this. In Genesis 22, right after he gives them this son, what happens next? And remember, as we dive into the story, this is the story that the writer of Hebrews assumes that you knew when he quoted Genesis 22, 17. So look at this with me. Here's how the story begins. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So 25 years of waiting for the promise. Bam, Isaac is finally born. Celebration, right? Everybody probably had the little baby shower, all that kind of stuff. They're all excited. And then after he's born, what does God tell him to do? Now go kill him. Go sacrifice him on the altar. And this is bizarre because everywhere else in the Bible, God actually opposes child sacrifice. He hates child sacrifice. In fact, he punishes the Canaanites for child sacrifice. So what in the world is God doing here? Why would he ever command this? Well, it actually tells us in verse 1. Abraham is enduring a test. And notice, look in your own Bible, who's doing the testing? God. Wait a minute. Does God really do this? Does God really test people? Yep. Because testing often reveals what's truly inside of your heart. Testing often reveals what you're really putting your faith in. Testing sanctifies us. It refines us. It grows us. And therefore, at times, or at times, God will test us. Now, to be clear, I want to be clear on this, not every single ounce of suffering and hardship you experience is God testing you. Sometimes you're experiencing suffering, and it's not because God's testing you, it's because you made a dumb decision. Or it's because somebody else made a dumb decision. You're experiencing the consequences of it. Sometimes you experience suffering and hardship 
Not because God's testing you, but because we just live in a fallen, broken world. Or sometimes it's the enemy messing with you. But even then, even in those times, you need to understand something. God is sovereign. And he is still in control. And he is using even these moments to refine us and reform us so that we can find out what we are really made of and ultimately be made more and more into his image, into the people he created us to be. And so that's what's happening right here. He is testing Abraham, and it is a big test. What God wants Abraham to see in this moment is what he wants you and me to see as well. Every single thing we have right now is a gift from God. There is nothing we have that we pull together in our own power or our own wit. It's all a gift, and he's wanting Abraham to know, live with an open hand. Remember, Abraham, I'm going to bless your nation to be a blessing. You're going to have to live open-handed to fulfill the mission. And so he says, I've blessed you with this kid, the promised son, now sacrifice him. And what does Abraham do? Well, in Hebrews 11, it says that because Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Abraham believed that God was going to have him sacrifice Isaac, but he believed that when it happened, that God could reverse death. He'd bring him back to life. Abraham, with that incredible faith, moves forward. I just want to read this to you. I think we have time. I hope we do. Verse 3, look at this. As early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey and he took with his two, uh, took him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Try to put yourself emotionally in this place. I think I have a picture. Do we have the picture of Abraham and Isaac I can put on the screen for them? He took with him his two servants and his son Isaac. If you have a child, really try to put yourself in the place here. Put yourself in the place of Abraham. Put yourself in the place of Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. Remember that image. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. Just imagine this if you have a son or a child. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, or said to Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, what's going on here? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord reached out from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is set on the mountain, the Lord will of the Lord it will be provided. And then this is the part that the preacher in Hebrews quotes. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham in heaven, uh, from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, 
flip back over with that story in your mind to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. Where is this all going? Hebrews 6 verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Verse 15, and so after waiting patiently, right, for 25 years, Abraham received what was promised. People, verse 16, swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all the arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. To the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Now, in a summary, here's what he's saying. He's saying, remember the story of Abraham. Remember the promise he made in Genesis 12, and then the oath that he made to Abraham in Genesis 22. And when he made the oath, uh, think about this. He said he swore, God swore by himself. Now, you've heard people say things like, I swear to God, or I swear on the Bible. Why do people say that? They're trying to say, I swear by a higher authority. The preacher says, there is no higher authority than God. God doesn't have a higher authority that he can swear by. No one's greater than God. No one's bigger than God. No one's better than God. And so he swears by himself. He says, Abraham, everything that I have said, I will fulfill. He makes not only a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, but an oath in Genesis 22. And why does he do this? Verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, and what he means by those two things is the character of God and the promises of God. Neither one of these things changes. God's character, he's always the same. He's always good, right, perfect, holy. His promises, they never change. If he says it, he's going to fulfill it. By God did this so that by these two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, remember he's talking to people who have been persecuted, who have been running for their lives. We who have fled can take hold of the hope set before us and be greatly encouraged. Now, there is so much in there, but for the sake of time, What the preacher wants you and me to see today is the reason you can have faith and patience. The reason you can continue to trust God. The reason you can continue to press forward in the mission even when life is hard is because, listen to this, we have an unchangeable God that makes unbreakable promises. Like that's the point of the Abraham story. He wants, the preacher says, look, you've got to realize this because life's going to get hard Things are going to get difficult. You're not going to always see how God is working or what is going on. You're going to be tempted to turn back. You're going to be tempted to get lazy. You're going to be tempted to just live like you used to live. He says, you have to remember, we have an unchangeable God that makes unbreakable promises. He says, remember the story of Abraham. Remember how despite the circumstances, despite the sin and the failures and the flaws and the hardship, how how year after year after year, him and Sarah waited and waited and waited and nothing seems to be happening. He says, remember that Abraham was fickle, but even though Abraham was fickle, God remained faithful. He continued to work, even behind the scenes, and true to his word, he fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham, the promise that he is going to, through his nation, bless the nations. And ultimately, by the way, how did God fulfill this promise? Well, if you keep reading, the preacher says, he says, ultimately, he fulfilled this promise, not through Abraham's only son, Isaac, but through God's only son, Jesus. The Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he did what Isaac did not have to do. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus, he's like Isaac. Jesus was an only son. Jesus is like Isaac. He carried wood up a mountain. Jesus is like Isaac. 
in so many ways, but here's where he was not like Isaac. Unlike Isaac, Jesus didn't get the easy way out. Jesus was sacrificed. He became the ram who shed his blood so that rather than us living in the shame, guilt, and fear caused by the fall in the beginning of time, we can now, each of us, if we just trust in Christ, can experience the salvation and the satisfaction and the eternal security that we all long for. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 19. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we will finally get to Melchizedek next week. But for our purposes today, here's what I just want you to see, what the preacher wants you to see. He says, look, I know times get hard. I know it's hard to wait. I know it's hard to have a hope, this future-oriented faith to believe there really is this promise on the other side of the pain. And the preacher says, that is why we need this anchor whose name is Jesus. Why do we need an anchor? You don't need an anchor because life's easy. You don't need an anchor if life's going to be smooth. You need an anchor because hard is the normal. Ease is the exception to the rule. Hard in this life is normal. You need an anchor because storms are going to come. You need an anchor because winds are going to blow. You need an anchor because waves are going to threaten to break the boat that you have been journeying in. And he says, man, the good news is that Jesus will be that anchor for you. Which means today, if you struggle to stay committed to God because of Jesus, you can know God will always be committed to you. Jesus being your anchor means that even if you struggle to keep your promises to God, God will not struggle to keep his promises to you. Jesus as an anchor means that if you struggle to be faithful to God, he will not struggle to be faithful to you. And this has been such good news to me this week, because if I can be completely honest with you, there are many weeks where my faith feels as flimsy as a tissue, where my patience tank feels like it's running on E. And you see, the good news about the gospel is what ultimately is going to keep us from falling away, church. What's ultimately going to keep us from drifting is not our grit, but his grace. This alone is what has the power to keep us from shipwrecking our faith like many have before us. It is not our grit, it is God's grace that has been poured out through Jesus Christ, the one who, he says in here, entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What's that talking about? He's talking about the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the place where you could most intimately experience the presence of God, a place where in the Old Testament and even before Christ, only the priests could go. And he says, thanks to Jesus, now that's the place you can go. Thanks to Jesus, now not only do you have access to all of God's promises, you have access to God's very presence. You have access, therefore, to this refuge for your soul. And you can know, therefore, no matter what happens, that there is nothing that can ultimately do anything to you or take anything away that you do not need to lose. Your soul is eternally secure in Him. This is the gospel. And you know why we hear that and don't explode with joy? Do you know why we yawn at that? Do you know why some of us, when we hear that, we feel nothing? Do you know why there are some of us in the room today who struggle to believe that? Because we suffer. Because we experience hardship, loss, and heartbreaking news. Just this past week, my son, one of his friends in fourth grade, lost his dad in a car wreck. Good dude. Involved in his church, helps lead worship. Good dude. Died. Uh, last year, we had a girl come on our podcast to talk about how she had beat breast cancer. 
and then it returned with vengeance. And now she's home on hospice care, and the family is just praying and begging God that she can survive two more weeks so she can see her daughter graduate. How do we find hope in a world like that? How do we keep trusting God when so often it seems like he just doesn't care? How do we trust God when we feel like we're waiting in this darkness all alone, when the marriage continues to fall apart, when the healing doesn't come, when the prayer is not answered? When you, How do you hold out hope when it feels like God has forgotten you? Well, you remember this story. You remember that because God has fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham, that he will fulfill every single promise that he has also made to you. And if you're like, well, what promises have you made to me? Well, I'll just put a few of them on the screen for you real quick. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, one, you didn't know that he has promised you heaven. He has promised you there is coming a day where all sad things will come untrue. Where the prophet Isaiah says, sorrow and sighing will flee away and joy will overtake you. You realize there's coming a day where you could not be unhappy even if you wanted to be, if you trust in Christ. God promises forgiveness, even for me, even for you. In Christ, God promises he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Maybe your dad left, maybe your friends left, maybe somebody else left, the pastor left, whatever. God will never forsake you. God promises to listen to you when you pray. He promises to meet all of your needs. God promises to give you guidance. You have no idea where to go. God will show you where to go. You're not alone. He'll show you. God promises he'll work out all things for your good. Every single thing that you have had to endure. Every hardship promises one day I'm going to turn that into your good. God promises to crush Satan under your feet. He promises victory over the world's troubles, and he promises the Holy Spirit for those who ask, which means if you want the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will come and live in you to empower you to live the life God has called you to live. You don't have to live on this mission in your own power, but in the power of God. And you see, every time you look at the story of Abraham, you remember that if God promised it, he'll fulfill it. He will fulfill it. You take his word to the bank. God is a God of his word, so much so that in John 1 it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that through the death of this word, through the death of Jesus, you and I could have life. And Paul says this in Romans 8, we're almost done. He says, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. How do I know God's going to stay true to his promise? Because he's already stayed true to the greatest, most outlandish, craziest promise he could ever make, which is to send his son to come and die for you. While you were still a sinner, Christ came and he gave you his best while you were at your worst. And what Paul wants you to see, look, if God did that for you, when all you had done is sin against him, when God loved you so much that he laid down his son as a sacrifice for you, what makes you think he's going to nickel and dime you to death now? Why do you think he's going to give up on you now? He will fulfill every single promise. And therefore, the preacher says, please don't give up. I know it's getting hard, guys. I know it gets boring sometimes, guys. I know it seems like nothing is happening sometimes. I know this is costing you some money. It's costing you some comfort. It's costing you some, some instant gratification. But he says, don't give up. Keep pressing in. Keep practicing faith and patience with hope that we have an unchanging God who makes unbreakable promises. With that, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and, and bow your heads. And We're about to have a 
to celebrate a baptism together. But before we do that, I just want to ask you this question. And only you can answer it. Is Jesus your anchor? Is Jesus the one that you are putting your ultimate hope in? The truth is, guys, God will not protect you from the storms. But he has given us an anchor to keep us steady and stable in the midst of the storm. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus, I pray today is the day that you will do that. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who makes and keeps promises. And I pray that as we celebrate this baptism and as we sing these songs together, that we would realize that, Jesus, you truly are the anchor for our soul that we need more than anything else. And it's in your name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.